Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. I'm Andy McClanahan, and it's wonderful to have you as part of our community of listeners. In this episode, which is the last episode of 2022, we'll be discussing human rights in the UK. We're recording on the 12th of December, and Human Rights Day was two days ago. So to mark the occasion, my guests and I will explore the protections afforded to us all via the European Convention on Human Rights, which is integrated into domestic law via the Human Rights Act. We're also going to look at the plans of the Westminster government to alter these protections through the introduction of a UK Bill of Rights. However, in the last number of days, that is also starting to look a bit flaky. We're going to talk about what the changes might be. I'm going to talk about whether we think they're going to happen. With me today to discuss human rights in the UK are social workers Martin Sexton, chair of the Basra Policy, Ethics and Human Rights Committee, and Annie Smith, formerly of the British Institute for Human Rights and now community-led support delivery lead at the National Development Team for Inclusion. And also with us is June Pang, Policy and Campaigns Officer at Liberty. Martin, June and Annie, welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. Martin, how are you doing? Are you well? I'm well, thank you. Yes, I'm a little, little bit croaky, but but I'm, I'm, I'm getting over it. So it's great to be here. It's great to be Annie and and June, really looking forward to the conversation. Great, you joined the club with the croakiness. June, how are you doing? Are you well? Great, thank you. Um, it's really snowy today in London, so I've enjoyed looking out my window and seeing that. Beautiful, beautiful. Annie, how are you doing? Yeah, not too bad, thank you. I'm also a little bit croaky and also coming to you from a very snowy London. <laughs> okay, wonderful. And Martin, you are in Salford, isn't that right? Man- Manchester, yeah. So I live in Manchester. I work in Salford. Uh, so I can see I can see the snow on the, on on Kinder Scout from from the the window of my flat. So uh, that's that's as close as it's come to us today. Okay, apologies for the Salford thing. I'm always very very conscious of not mixing up Manchester and Salford. Uh, I thought I was doing <laughs> right. the right thing there. there you, you get go. you get the hang of it eventually. Okay, okay, right. Um, okay, so central to what we're looking at today is the government's plans to replace the Human Rights Act with a new Bill of Rights. As I mentioned in the introduction, that may not be happening now. But before we get into that, the best place to start is by looking at the Human Rights Act. June, can you tell us a bit about the Human Rights Act, when it was introduced and what it does for us? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks so much for having me on, Andy. And really great to be speaking with Annie and Martin as well. Um So the Human Rights Act. Um, So the Human Rights Act was introduced in 1998 um, and it officially came into force in the year 2000. Um, Effectively, what it did was to bring rights home, um, which means enabling individuals to enforce their rights in British courts rather than having to go to the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. And more widely, I think one of its more most important um, successes in its really, you know, short 20 or so years of existence is to usher in a culture of respecting and promoting human rights, dignity, um, respect across all of our interactions with the state, um, whether that's in schools and hospitals or in care homes. Um, and it safeguards everyone's rights and dignity in the everyday circumstances that we all experience, um, as well as in the terrible situations of human rights violations that we hope we will never experience. And Anna, you mentioned it, it brought that the legislation brought rights home. So the European Convention of Human Rights, people will be familiar with articles such as Article 2, the right to life, Article 4, prohibition of slavery and forced labour, Article 8, right to respect for private and family life. Now, what changed with the introduction of the Human Rights Act? You know, given the UK was and remains a signatory to the European Convention on Human Rights, what changed with its integration into domestic law? Was it making those rights accessible in UK courts? Yeah, so um, one of the big ways in which the Human Rights Act brought rights home from the European Convention on Human Rights was uh, it, it kind of did three key things. So the first thing that it did was it it puts a legal duty onto public authorities um, so as as June mentioned, um, kind of social workers, doctors, um, care home staff, police, um, to it puts a legal duty on them to respect, protect and fulfil human rights in everything that they do every day. So that legal duty didn't exist before we had the Human Rights Act. It also requires 
those public authorities and their staff to uh, apply other laws and policies and regulations uh, in, in a way which respects human rights as far as possible. The third way that it helps to uh, protect human rights in the UK is that if those two things aren't happening, if that legal duty hasn't been met or if that law has been applied incompatibly with human rights, then it enables people to bring a legal case here in the UK rather than having to go to Strasbourg. So that means that people can speak up for their rights every day in their conversations with public authorities. And does that apply to every level of court then in the UK? Yeah, so all all courts and tribunals have the same legal duties as frontline staff and central government as well. Really importantly, the UK has always been a signatory to the European Convention on Human Rights, and we were one of its first signatories. Um, But the Human Rights Act was really crucial in enabling, um, because we have a dualist system of law, whereby international laws are not directly effective in the UK unless there's legislation enacting that. Um, The Human Rights Act enabled this to happen. And the so the UK have been a secretary to the the European Convention from the outset. The UK were very involved in the drafting of the convention as well, isn't that correct? Yes, absolutely. And um, you know, Winston Churchill was really strong proponent of uh, a kind of human rights and and universal human rights, af- especially in the aftermath of the Second World War and the atrocities there. And I think that history is really important context when we're talking about current plans on the government, the conservative government, um, to repeal this really important piece of legislation, the Human Rights Act, that makes the European Convention on Human Rights actually enforceable um, in the UK. Yeah, because and just to remember that it wasn't something, the European Convention, it wasn't something foisted on the UK. It was something that the UK were front and centre in the development of. Absolutely. Um, in terms of the, the government's plans, the plans for a Bill of Rights, referred to by others as a rights removal bill, the government contends that it's delivering on its 2019 Uh, The 2019 Conservative Party Manifesto commitment to overhaul the Human Rights Act and replace it with a Bill of Rights. It contains the reforms which would be delivered by the bill will, quote, reinforce our tradition of liberty whilst curtailing the abuses of human rights, restoring some common sense to our justice system and ensuring that our human rights framework meets the needs of the society it serves, end quote. Now I have a couple of questions here. First of all, do you think the government actually has the mandate it claims based on its 2019 manifesto to introduce the Bill of Rights? I I would say no. Um, so the manifesto in 2019 promised to simply update the Human Rights Act. But what's happening here, as June said before, is that the Human Rights Act would not be updated, but completely repealed and replaced uh, with this new Bill of Rights or a rights removal bill. Um, so it goes a lot further than the manifesto commitment. Something kind of sticks in my craw about that is the restoring some common sense to our justice system, as if the justice system is devoid of common sense and we need a government to reintroduce that. Yeah, I think I think that's a good point, Andy. I mean, um, the government did carry out a review of the Human Rights Act, um, which evidence was taken. It was led by a senior judge um, and certain proposals were made for reform and change. Um, then we got a new Secretary of State for Justice who just from out of nowhere, really, introduced a completely different set of proposals that weren't backed up by any evidence or any review um, that I think everyone agrees are pretty confusing, that, 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 that actually don't do what they're, 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 they look as though they're going to do on the tin, um, and that are going to leave the, the, the job of the judges much more difficult than it was before, trying to kind of unpick this, this unhelpful and confusing framework. Um, which 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 is being substituted for what we currently have without, as far as I can see, a good enough case being made for those kinds of changes. Well, on that, on the case that's being made, you know, before we get into the detail, the government, they've claimed that uh, the new legislation is needed to address abuses of human rights under the Human Rights Act. June, is there any validity in that claim? Do we need, are there abuses that need to be addressed? I think the whole idea of of framing human rights as being abused is a really dangerous and frankly, it's misinformation um, and a vehicle 
to actually justify curtailing and restricting rights by a government that's um, systematically closing down avenues of accountability, whether that's in terms of our protest rights or judicial review or, um, you know, undermining scrutiny in parliament, like more generally. Um, I think as the others have mentioned, the government has ignored um the Independent Human Rights Act Review, which was commissioned by a previous Justice Secretary, Robert Buckland, um, it ignored the findings of its um, uh, the Ministry of Justice's consultation into the human uh, into its Bill of Rights, um, which was responded to by I think it was more than twelve thousand people. Um, the overwhelming majority of which said it ain't broke, don't fix it, don't try and repeal the Human Rights Act. And I think Annie will speak later on about all the ways that it also locked entire groups of people, disabled people especially, out of the consultation process. And then since, you know, Dominic Robb left government the first time, um, the bill has been panned by critics across the political spectrum. You know, you have the the people who you would expect to um, defend the Human Rights Act, like Baroness uh, Helena Kennedy, and um, but also people like the editor of Conservative Home. You have this meeting of the minds of um, all these. Yes. Yeah, I was quite surprised when I read. I read some stuff in Conservative Home. And Robert Buckland himself, he's been pretty critical as yeah, well. Yeah, absolutely, because no one thinks that this is a good idea, whether it's former Supreme Court judges or the general public, the majority of whom also don't agree with taking rights away from certain people or reducing the ability of individuals to hold power to account. So no one seems to want to do this apart from Dominic Robb. It's that strange notion that, you know, people talk about rights being abused as if it's something that others get away with rather than human rights being something that we all benefit from. You know, uh, this notion that, yeah, others are doing this to me um, as opposed you know, people that would vote away their own human rights. It just seems to be, you know, beyond belief. When a government is attempting to fundamentally change human rights law in the UK, the I feel like the burden of evidence is on them to show that there are abuse, that there may be these abuses that they're claiming that there are. But actually in the consultation, um, there was no evidence it just said we want to stop trivial human rights claims. So it's insinuating that those are happening without actually providing any kind of evidence to back up those claims. I mean, the, the example which always gets um, cited is Article 8 rights, uh, rights to privacy and family life in terms of um, people that maybe have been charged with terrorist offences. Isn't that, is that the, that's the sort of the red top tabloid example that gets cited a lot. Is that, does that not bear out? Are there not examples of that where that has happened? The government is really adept at trying to paint certain communities, in this case and in, in, in recent months, well, in the last few years, um, specifically refugees, migrants, and um, you know people who are seeking sanctuary in the UK as villains and somehow as the, you know, um, abusers of human rights that's... Um, that means that we need to, you know, crack down. And not only, again, as Annie said, this is not, is this not borne out in the actual evidence. And I think the organization Bail for Immigration Detainees did a really powerful letter unpacking the ways that the specific examples of deportation um, cases picked out by the government as problematic in the Bill of Rights consultation um, were actually presented in incredibly skewed and, um, again, misleading ways. Um, but also, we, we also, as a, as a community of people who care about human rights, have a real duty to reject this framing altogether. Because I don't think it's, it, again, it's not about whether people are, like, people can't abuse human rights. Human rights are there for people to use in order to enforce them and to ensure that they're not in this case, for example, torn away from their families and communities. Thank you. Thank you, Jean. Before we go any further, I think it bears mentioning, um, it's been reported in The Guardian, The Mirror and The Mail that the the Bill of Rights may be shelved, um, that it may not progress. So everything we're talking about today may not happen anyway. Um, th that would be the second time, essentially, that the bill has, has been dropped. 
think it's actually the third kind of. Okay, um, <laughs> stand corrected. Thank you. Um, okay. In the sense that uh, when, uh, like Rob was first, well, stood down <laughs> um, when we had the summer leadership election before. Uh, yeah, after Boris Johnson, um, we thought there was a bit of a respite and the Bill of Rights might have been shelved. And then Liz Truss came into power and then said that the Bill of Rights might be shelved. And then Dominic Robb came back. And then, but now seems to be uh, the last we heard last week um, is that it might be shelved again. Um, and the, the reporting doesn't suggest though it's because of a commitment to the promotion of human rights. It suggests it's because it's too too contentious to make it through uh, the, the Commons and the Lords without massive, massive amendments. I mean, yeah, I think it's, as with the second time it was shelved under Liz Truss's government, I don't think we can really um, ascribe a desire to protect human rights to... Um, any of the governments that have proceeded with really um, restrictive rights legislation, um, the worst of which we've seen um, pass, um, some of the worst of which we have seen pass. But no, I think the real reason is that Rishi Sunak is realizing that he doesn't have the political momentum or capital to pass this legislation, at least in the current form, or at least we we hope so. But I think what's really concerning is um, the government's potential divide and conquer strategy, whereby it attempts to introduce smaller, more targeted pieces of legislation, specifically, for example, around asylum and immigration, or taking forward like particular aspects of the Bill of Rights Bill or the Rights Removal Bill, for example, um, changes to the way that uh, British courts interpret uh uh, legislation that is designed to kind of fracture um, the response and and pick off certain groups again, um, and it's really important on, on us to to see the united nature of these attacks and to resist them collectively. There might be nothing in this, but I had a perception that when Rab was brought back and the Bill of Rights was reintroduced, it was as a sort of sop to the right wing of the Tory party to kind of get Sunak through his first number of weeks holding that sort of very loose coalition of factions in the Conservatives together. And now that they've got through that number of weeks, it's been potentially dropped. Could be entirely wrong, but that was my, my thought. I think that there could be something in that, but equally, it was noticeable that during the uh, the first leadership election, uh, so when Boris Johnson stepped down and and Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss and a bunch of other people stood for leadership, there were at least a couple of people, um, Cami Badnock and I think Suella Braverman as well, possibly part of their platform was withdrawal from the European Convention. So even if this particular bill isn't going anywhere fast and 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 it will be difficult for uh the current government to introduce any comprehensive proposals, there's obviously still a degree of of appetite amongst amongst certain sections of the Conservative Party for significant reform or repeal. Um so this is this is a, a discussion uh, we're likely to be having again, I think. So I think it's 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 really important to have this opportunity now to talk about some what the key what the key ideas are to unpack some of these ideas, these myths about human rights abuses and so on, so that people get a really clear idea of what is at stake um and what 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 kind of arguments need to be brought forward when when this all comes around again because it, it surely will. Absolutely. And I'm really keen to take uh, ask you each about what you are most concerned about in, in relation to the bill. But before we do that, and this is jumping way ahead, but because you mentioned, Martin, um, you know, the, the pitches that were made by uh, Conservative Party leadership contenders to withdraw from the, the European Convention on Human Rights, were that to happen, what would it mean for the UK on a global stage? That would be a massively significant move. And to bear in mind, the European Convention is part of the Council of Europe. It's nothing to do with the European Union. Um, but you would, you know, You'd be inclined to think that's an extension of Brexit thought, you know, leave the European Union, leave the Council of Europe, ditch the European Convention on Human Rights. But what would that mean? What would that mean for the country's standing globally? This would be absolutely devastating for the state of rights protections in the UK. It would put us in the company of Russia and Belarus um, and you know, working in parliamentary advocacy on on other bills, for example, again on protest. I think 
some parliamentarians are very much hesitant to count themselves, like count the UK or hear comparisons of the UK um, with these countries that, you know, they associate with human rights violations. But this is the end point. Like, this is what will happen. Um, this is the fact. <laughs> like, these are the facts. Russia Russia were, were removed, weren't they? They weren't, they didn't withdraw themselves. It was, they were removed over the invasion of Ukraine. Isn't that right? From yeah, the yeah. As, as signatories. So the UK would be doing something voluntarily that was imposed upon Russia for starting uh, an illegal war. Absolutely. And it would completely, and this has been kind of the... Um, something that's been voiced by other organizations as well, but it would completely undermine um, things that don't have anything maybe even in certain people's minds to do with human rights. For example, our um, data sharing like adequacy agreements across um, the UK and, and other European countries that we use to like share information between, you know, criminal investigations. Um, and it would also just deal a death blow to human rights protections internationally. I think the UK tends to see itself as an island and separate somehow, maybe exceptional uh, when it comes to human rights protections, but human rights are universal and international and any kind of, you know, unilateral declaration that human rights just doesn't apply to people in the UK anymore will have really negative and severe impact on on people in other countries also fighting for their human rights and not to mention completely undermine the UK's own credibility when it comes to um, criticizing other countries like China, Russia um, on their human rights records. Thank you, June. That's really helpful. So that's at the extreme end of the scale where the UK to remove itself from the European Convention on Human Rights. But coming right back to the Bill of Rights and what's proposed in the Bill of Rights, in terms of what you think is the most concerning element of that Bill of Rights, uh, let's go first. Let's Annie first, and then Martin, then June. What, what What's concerning you most, Annie? For me, I think the thing that I'm most worried about in the Rights Removal Bill is the, the plan to unravel the positive obligations on public authorities, um, which is the obligation to take proactive steps to protect rights when they're at risk. It's basically the foundation of safeguarding. Great. We're going to come back to that. Martin, what do you think? Yep, I agree with that. Um, the, um, I think the notion of a permission stage for human rights um, cases is also worrying. Um, I mean, there's already a, a notion in how human rights laws applied that that it's not just somebody saying that's against my human rights. You know, you've got to come up with a serious argument for what's going on and what's and that, that it's it's an important enough uh, cause to put before a court. That's that's there already. So I don't see a clear argument for a, for a permission stage, and you know anything that's going to make it more difficult for people to 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 get the protection of of, of the Human Rights Act, and more difficult for people to to you know to, to get get their voices to be heard is 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 a worry. Thank you, Martin. Jean. Two things. The first thing is the rights removal bill's erosion of all of our ability to hold the executive to account, specifically by reducing the ability of courts to interpret legislation in line with human rights and to reduce parliamentary scrutiny of legislation uh, in accordance with human rights. And the second thing is the attack on the universality of human rights. And that's through various proposals to specify and target certain communities with radical reductions of their rights, um, paving the way for erosions of, of all of our rights. Thanks. And let's go through this in detail. Now, if we could start with the element of the Bill of Rights that would repeal Section 3 of the Human Rights Act. This section of the Act requires that the UK courts interpret legislation in a way which is compatible with convention rights. Um, Annie, can you offer an example of how rescinding Section 3 of the Human Rights Act would impact people in the UK? Yeah, so Section 3, is, as you mentioned, is it, that's a really important duty in the Human Rights Act. It's, it is about the courts interpreting legislation compatibly with human rights, but it's as far as they can, as far as possible. Um, but it's also about the decision-making of public authorities every day as well um, and how they use laws in, in their day-to-day -day work, um, like mental health legislation, child protection legislation. Um, so, for example, social workers have to apply those those laws that they're using in a way which respects and protects human rights as far as possible. Otherwise, that decision could be challenged in, in court. So this duty helps to make sure that uh, everyone involved in public services, including the courts, are, are uh, using those other laws through a human rights lens. So 
what the government wants to do is, is scrap this duty altogether um, because they think that courts are changing legislation um, that goes against the original purpose, but that's not what's happening. Um, so it's a misrepresentation of what the courts can do. They can't change the law. Um, they have to respect what Parliament intended when it made that law. But sometimes uh, a law might be written in a way which is maybe unclear or which is uh, was written quite a few years ago uh, and it might not account for the changing times that we live in. Um, so the courts have a really crucial role in interpreting that law in a way which uh, supports everyone. It makes sure that everyone's rights are being upheld. So... If the courts aren't required to interpret laws compatibly with human rights, which is what would happen if Section 3 was removed, is that laws could get stuck in the past um, and a lot of individuals would uh, might be facing human rights violations um, and be unable to challenge that through through the courts because that, that section no longer exists. So if the, if the courts aren't required to interpret laws compatibly with human rights, which is what would happen if Section 3 was removed... Um, then we would be stuck with laws that are potentially outdated. The courts would have to make maybe more de- declarations of incompatibility, which would go back to um, Parliament to look at. Um, so it would put a, more work to Parliament. Um, but it also means that individuals uh, every day might be facing situations where their rights are not protected by the laws that we have. Um, and, and that's going to put people at risk, basically. In terms of also the the Bill of Rights, if it's introduced, the UK courts won't have to take account of decisions made by the European Court of Human Rights as well, isn't that right? So again, that is essentially setting human rights law, you know, time dating it, things don't move past this point. I'd read it uh, suggested somewhere that it's as if Rab wants to have the European Convention as it was in 1953, as if it's never developed. But, you know, without recognition that as society evolves, human rights need to be reinterpreted. It's a little bit like, now, please, someone correct me if I'm wrong on this, but it kind of uh, rings a bit of those arguments you get around the US Constitution in terms of, you know, the the kind of original interpretation of the Constitution or, um, isn't it originalist? Isn't that what it's called, June? Do you know? Yeah. Okay. Um, Am I on the right lines there? do 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 you see that in the same way? I think that's absolutely right. And I think one of the most important and and fundamental aspects of the European Convention on Human Rights, which our Human Rights Act incorporates, is that um, what, you know, lawyers, I guess, call the living instrument doctrine. Effectively, that means that um, human rights laws have to evolve um, to suit and adapt to changing times, like in 19... You know, in the 1950s, when the ECHR was being written, um, computers were not as, you know, advanced as they did not exist. Um, we did not have, uh, you know, AI that was not, not even in the minds of most people, for example. And um, climate crisis wasn't, you know, uh, this, uh, you know, uh, something that everyone had top of mind. Um, and the aversion that people like Dominic Robb and the very, very few proponents of the Rights Removal Bill have um, to this living instrument uh, interpretation is very similar to the um, proponents of originalism in the U.S. Um, that, as we saw in the recent um, overturning of Roe versus Wade, um, the case around abortion access, um, is really dangerous and a really um, quite terrifying strain because what it would effectively do is to freeze our human rights protections um, back to that era and and not only stop um, kind of future protections from developing and growing. Um, and I can think of loads of examples, but for example, around the gig economy, or again, with AI and data protection, but also undo the progress that we've made as a society across the last 70 years, which just seems, um, you know, totally absurd, ridiculous, destructive, but also incoherent. How can we go back to a time when, um, we can pretend that these things didn't exist and we don't need to be protected from them. Just totally doesn't make any sense, um, not to mention being terrible for our human rights. Thank you, June. One of the the points that has been made a couple of times, touched on a couple of times, is this issue around positive obligations. And this is something which is very relevant to social work and I really want to drill into now. 
So under the Human Rights Act, public authorities have a duty to take positive steps to protect human rights. We've discussed this. These are called positive obligations. Now, Clause 5 of the Bill of Rights, it stipulates there will be no new positive obligations. But more than that, in judging whether an existing positive obligation applies, courts must give great weight to factors such as cost and impact on the public body. Now, Jean, I know that Liberty has stated unambiguously that this will reduce protections, but I want to look at this particularly from a social work perspective. So how could this impact people who use social work services? So, Martin... Um, does this run the risk of undermining the provision of services such as you know, domiciliary care, for example, where a disabled person has care needs which result in really large costs to a local authority? Does that limit the, the, the provision they might receive? I think there's a risk that it will. I think there's a risk that the, the, the message that's coming out is, is the wrong message and, and that people's thinking will be affected by it um, and that, they, that people who are you know, managers and senior managers in social care under face of lots of pressures trying to manage budgets dealing with falling workforces increasing demand and so on it will start to it will start to seep into the way people think and it will change it will change the culture it's not so much the legal details it's actually the, the culture and the way people think and the the approach that people are taking to to you know problem solving and helping people to 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 live lives that are as full and as rich as possible and uh, you know, and the discussion we've just had, I think, is a really important one. Our ideas as a society of what what counts as a full, rich, and flourishing life have changed hugely over over the last sixty, seventy years. And who should be supported to have that life? You know, um, all these things, all these things come about through having a positive approach to human rights. And so the, the risk definitely is that the that 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 will start to people thinking will be affected. They won't be thinking in that positive, engaged way with these human rights ideas. And as far as um, the, the cost issue, I mean, the judges are already very well aware that public services don't have, you know, have to make difficult choices about spending and so on. Um, they already, you know, are well aware of the need to, to be respectful of, you know, social work decision makers and medical decision makers in, in, their, in their sphere of expertise. I don't, I don't think they need any, any further instruction on that. So I think there's a, there's a, there's a kind of non-problem here. And also, you know, the, the same fundamental misunderstanding of what human rights are and what they're for and how they should operate. And, and yes, it would be, you know, the, if, if you could convince yourself, if even if you could convince yourself, let's say, for sake of argument, that in the prison system, in, in counter-terrorism, in asylum, the, the, the whole human rights concept has gone too far, even if you could convince yourself of that, it's definitely not true in social care. Social care is not suffering from, uh, you know, an overabundance and enthusiasm for for human rights. It needs more. It needs much more. And we just just a quick example of that. You know, the problems that some people are still having um, in some places about being able to visit their relatives in, in care homes. You know, if you look at that through a human rights lens, it changes changes the question completely. And and it may and it and it changes into something that this is something we have to try and solve. Yes, there are legitimate concerns and people have had terrible experiences. But if you're looking at from that person's right to have a family relationship with with their their partner or their children or whoever it may be, then it completely turns around what it is you're trying to do and how you're trying to do it. So so you know we 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 need more we need more of it, not less. Absolutely. And we discussed previously about, you know, how rights, you know, interpretation of rights leads to an evolution in terms of how rights uh, apply but similarly if we look at this in kind of a concrete example in terms of social care if care improves over the years because of positive obligations if no new positive obligations um, are to be adhered to and if pre- previous or existing positive obligations are only going to be um, listened to uh, and worked to if, if it's if it's feasible in terms of funding etc and that suggests care may not improve because there is no uh, driving force from a human rights perspective to ensure that services get better over time now we recognise We've talked about funding. Funding constrains so much. But from a you know, just from the philosophical point of view of how care ought to evolve based on improvements in practice and learning, that could be at risk as well. Definitely. And uh, we've definitely we've seen over the um over the years, you know, the, the difference in outlook in our society towards people with, you know, disabilities and impairments and, and different kinds of challenges, both their physical and mental health, um, and how people who are in that situation should should have the, the same sorts of 
opportunities to live a, a meaningful and, and rich life as anybody else and how there's an obligation on public services to try and bring that about. So there, there's more than one issue here. There's, there's a lack of understanding of what social care is and what it's for and why it's important. And then there's a lack of understanding of what human rights are and how they work. And, and that they, so there's the risk, yeah, definitely in social care, the risk is that those two things kind of come together in a, in a really negative way. I think there's so many really important points that Martin's raised there. And I think another thing about positive obligations and the fact that they could be watered down or we don't get any new ones or the previous ones are undermined is that I've in, I've delivered a lot of workshops with a lot of um, social workers, staff working in public authorities, and nobody has ever told me that respecting human rights is a burden on them. Everybody come we come into these these like this line of work to to uphold rights, and the positive obligations are part of that. It's about not only avoiding breaching human rights in our own through our own actions, but also stepping in and protecting people's rights where they're at risk and um, introducing confusion uh, and and um, uncertainty into that framework that public officials use every day to make sure that they are upholding people's rights. That's that's just going to make things uh, harder for, for people who are just trying to do, do their job, but it's also going to make it, um, it's going to put people's rights at risk every day um, if, if those staff are not clear about what their duties are and if they're not able to effectively advocate um, against decisions which put people's rights at risk. I I think it's important to get some sense of the kind of range of different things that we're talking about when we're talking about people's rights not being respected or violated. I mean, if you talk, if you say human rights violation, I think images pop into our mind of protesters being beaten up or chucked into prison or, or, or things, you know, really awful, terrible things like that happening. And sadly, we know in our care system sometimes, um, that's that's the experience that, that people have, but but we're talking about other things as well. We're talking about not being able to eat the food that you like, or not being able to see the person that you you like to see, or or, or never being taken out for, um, never being able to get make it onto the bus to go out for an activity because of because somebody decides that that's that's you know that's not going to happen, or 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 that's that's not something you're going to appreciate, or all sorts of things like this. And and you know, in my work in social care. Um, we, you know, I, we work with, with people who who are not able to make their own decisions about their own care, and so decisions have to be made in their best interests. So we have to respect their human rights and respect their liberty. And often, it's very, you know things that might to to you and I seem like really quite small things are actually really important because the, 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 we're talking about people who are quite you know ill, frail, don't have a lot of um, choices left available to them because of the the, the 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 health conditions that they have. So any kind of choice that they can still ex- exercise. Is really important, and 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 coming at coming at the, this, you know, working with people from a human rights perspective helps you to see that, and helps you to appreciate it, and helps you to make, you know, not not huge or, or not always huge changes that are going to cost a lot of money, but just little small changes, but the really meaningful changes for for people that are going to make their lives better, that improve the relationship between their family and the care provider, with the, the relationship with the social worker. Um, you know, it's it's really important to, to have this full spectrum in our minds i think we're not just talking about one end where really awful terrible things are happening although sadly you know we have to we have to address that as well um but we're talking about a whole range of, of different ways in which you know people just just aren't respected just 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 aren't respected in the way they should be and if you actually focus on respecting them a bit more that actually can have really significant um bring about really significant improvements in their well-being and in their you know, relationships between everybody involved and Martin, given so your area of expertise is mental health, social work, um, deprivation of liberty. Yeah. You know, in that context, do you see with pressures on staff, with pressures on budgets, do you fear a sort of rollback then in terms of the promotion of human rights within the delivery of services that uh, the introduction of a Bill of Rights would only uh, hasten? Yeah, I think I think the risk is there. I mean, um, it's it's partly a, it's partly a resource issue and it's partly a cultural issue. Obviously, having fewer resources makes makes things more puts more more people under more pressure and what one of the problems that that we see is that um everybody gets treated the same in 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 a care home or or a sheltered housing project or, or somewhere like that that people's individual circumstances aren't aren't fully taken into account because maybe there are staff shortages the shortage of money so people get subject to restrictions that that are just not appropriate that maybe some people in in that place do need 
to be restricted in those ways for, for, for their safety, but not everybody does. But but it's just it, this is how we do it here. That's that's um, that that's what happens. And the the, the uh, restraint reduction network have recently produced some really good resources to highlight the, the problem of blanket restrictions, um, and 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 showing how a human rights approach can get you know unpack this and get you thinking. Well, it's got it's got to work for everybody. And what we're doing for John might not be what we should be doing for Jim or Jane. So, so it's it's we've got always got to think in that way, um, and and understand that people are under pressure and recognise the pressures, but but keep coming back to this this way of respecting everyone's individual dignity and thinking about what's right, what's proportionate for this particular person. Thank you, Martin. That's really helpful looking at those sort of very, I suppose, what we can maybe call everyday examples of human rights violations that may go unnoticed but do have a big impact in terms of people's lives. If we lift it back up to kind of the most, the highest level or what gets the most attention in the media, something else I've heard discussed in relation to the Bill of Rights is the impact it would have in relation to interim measures issued by the European Court of Human Rights. And the example that's cited in relation to that um, is the grounding of the first removal flight to Rwanda. That was prevented by an interim uh, measure issued by the European Court of Human Rights. And those were the um, the flights that were, they were introduced, were they, was it Pretty Patel or was it Sirella Breverman had, had, that was their, their idea? It was Pretty Patel, I think. Okay, okay. Um, and uh, that was for, it was for asylum seekers, isn't it, to be deported to Rwanda? So can you, uh, June, can you tell us a bit about that? So how do those interim measures of the European court, how do they operate? And can, are there any other examples of how people could be impacted in the UK if, if the Bill of Rights was introduced? Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, um, also thanks to the others, because I learned a lot about the context of, of um, social work and positive obligations as well. Um, so I think the first thing to say is that um, interim measures are really, really exceptional measures that um, are um, given by the European Court of Human Rights when there is a risk to individuals, a real risk of serious and irreversible harm. Um, and in the case of the Rwanda flight, evidently um, based on the you know, numerous statements from the, uni- uh, the UNHCR, which is the United Nations High Commissioner of Refugees, um, t- down to the kind of medical experts that have said um, and spoken about the, the impacts of being deported, uh, removed to Rwanda um, of asylum seekers. Like this is one of those cases where you had just... It's actually a bit um, extraordinary that we're even having this conversation. This is actually a plan that the government is intent on progressing. The Home Secretary has previously said that it's her dream to see a picture of the flight taking off on the front page of the newspaper. Um, But I guess this is where we are. Um, But what the rights removal bill will do is to effectively prohibit courts from, um, like, uh, taking into account or or following interim measures of the European Court, um, which means that um, the Rwanda flight could have gone ahead, um, but also cases that um, just could engender that kind of harm could arise as well. And another case um, that uh, affected uh, someone in the UK was um, interim measures being granted to prevent the destruction of fertilized embryos um, requested by one member of a couple um, while like arguments about kind of family life and like the right to life were heard. Um, and this is like, you know, the worst example of knee-jerk government policy based on absolutely no evidence. Again, this was appeared completely not to be in any of the consultations that government undertook into the rights removal bill and solely designed to um, respond to, I guess, the the um, interim measure that stopped the first removal flight. And not only is this just a terrible way to make laws and policies, but more importantly, most importantly, it will really undermine like rights protections in the UK, but also more broadly, because again, going to our previous point about the kind of impact of the UK's reneging on its international obligations. 
are other countries going to do when, um, you know, they are also given interim measures. And before um, Russia was like expelled out of the Council of Europe, interim measures were also um, uh, issued by the European court to stop two British war, uh, like prisoners of war, um, who were fighting in uh, Russia-occupied uh, territory um, around Ukraine um, to stop them from being executed. So <laughs> I don't know, again, we are in the company of um, countries that that want to do this kind of thing um, and targeting some of the most marginalized and lacking access to justice people in, in our society when we should be trying to promote again respect and dignity for everyone regardless of who they are, what they've done and where they were born. Um, June, there's another issue which Liberty have flagged up again in relation to, to deportation and it's in relation to um, the right to respect for private and family life, um, Article 8 of the European Convention. Liberty has outlined that the Bill of Rights would prevent courts from finding deportation legislation incompatible with Article 8 unless it reaches an extremely high threshold of harm. And you've also said that it would create a presumption in favour of diplomatic assurances which have previously been shown to be flawed. So two issues there and if we could unpick those quickly. In terms of the threshold of harm that I mentioned there, what would that look like in the case of a person citing their Article 8 rights in the context of a government trying to seek their deportation from the UK? The Rights Removal Bill effectively paves the way for the government to pass legislation down the line that further really curtails um, Article 8 challenges to deportation. Now, this is obviously in a context where Article 8 challenges are already exceedingly um exceptional and and not um, easy. There's automatic deportation if you have, you know, a a criminal sentence of 12 months or over. And it's already so difficult for people, including those who have, you know, never lived outside of the UK, born here, um, have family here, have children here to claim their human rights. And what this will do is usher in, um, you know, greater difficulties. again, overlapping with problems with accessing justice and, um, you know, more deeply rooted social problems that um, create the conditions for people to maybe like um, commit criminal offences. And then on to the diplomatic assurances point, um, I think what the rights removal bill does is to effectively, um, again, make it harder for people to when faced with a removal decision to challenge the presumption that um, the diplomatic assurances of the country that they will be removed to, um, that the country is safe, basically. Um, And there are previous examples um, of cases where basically the country has said the country is safe and then people have been removed on the basis of those assurances and then disappear. And then there's no more um, contact with them or, or there's no record of, of whether they then experienced human rights violations or abuses. Um, and But more generally, I guess we just have to really query um, the, and and challenge the way that the Bill of Rights really singles out people, whether it's migrants and refugees, but also there's another section on like um, public protection, quote unquote, basically people who have criminal convictions. Um, and June, this comes back to the universality point you made at the very start. Yeah, exactly. It just, yeah, it just, the whole logic of targeting certain groups and um, you know, tying the reduction of all of our rights to the diminishing of, of particular groups' rights is, is is a trend that we really need to resist. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a matter of all of our rights and all of our rights are deeply interconnected because we never know what might happen to us. And um, it's really important for us to stand together, whether it's social workers or um, people working in other areas. Thank you, June. Now, we've discussed how the legislation may be dropped again. It may not make it through Parliament. But if we go all the way back to the consultation phase, I'm aware that there were some shortcomings in terms of how government consulted on the development of the legislation. Just as a final word, Annie, uh, it's an issue you flagged up. Can you explain a bit more about that? Yeah, of course. Um, I think it was mentioned by Martin before about the the, the ball kind of 
starting to roll with the independent review of the Human Rights Act. That was a panel of experts who um, did quite a thorough investigation into how the Human Rights Act works now. It came to largely the conclusion that the Human Rights Act works pretty well. It made a couple of suggestions for small tweaks, um, but certainly not um, any recommendations that reach the scale of what is being proposed in the Bill of Rights, uh, as we've discussed for the past few <laughs> few minutes. But what happened next was when it published the, the findings of the independent review, it also opened this public consultation for 12 weeks. And when you... Um, when we've discussed everything that this this bill would do, uh, how it, how severely it would impact people people's lives every day, especially those who interact with public services a lot, um, you would want to you would think that you would be supporting those people who rely the most on the Human Rights Act to participate and to give their views on what those changes would be, but actually what we had was a consultation which was incredibly long, incredibly technical. Um, quite uh, very difficult to understand even with people with quite a lot of like legal expertise um it offered as we've said a lot uh, not very much evidence to support the proposals and there were no accessible versions of the consultation made available until the very last minute and they only came out at the very last minute due to public pressure from uh, civil society and from self-advocacy and advocacy organizations who wanted to have their say on these changes and they weren't able to do that with what had been published. So um, I think from speaking to self-advocacy groups and, and disabled people's organisations, they very much felt like an afterthought in this consultation, which would have a huge impact on their lives and the lives of the people around them. So, um, yeah, I just think it's um, quite shameful, really, from the the Ministry of Justice that um, that it wasn't a consideration for them. Additionally, um, if they wanted staff who work in public services to participate, the consultation ran from December to March 2021 to 2022, when we had a huge rise in COVID cases. It's winter pressures, as always. There was a lot of staff shortages around that time, incredibly busy for a lot of people working in public services. So if they wanted uh, public officials who are applying those laws, trying to respect, protect and fulfil human rights every day, uh, if they wanted them to respond, they couldn't have really picked a worse time to do that. So, um, yeah, I think the consultation, it's fair to say that it was completely unevidenced and inaccessible um, and really exclusionary of the people who would be impacted. Thank you, Annie. Martin, Annie, June, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's been great talking to you. I'd love to have you back on again. I hope it's not in the context of the Bill of Rights legislation becoming law. If it is, we'll have to have you back to, to scrutinise. Um, but thank you very much for being on Let's Talk Social Work. Thank you very much for having me. It's been great to uh, have a chat with all of you. Thanks so much. Really great to chat. Thanks, Andy. Always always good to, to talk to you and to the wonderful people you get on your podcast. So yeah, it's been, been a really good, really good conversation.